0: there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency. Today's guest is the president and publisher of FSG. She's had a long, illustrious career in publishing and some of the authors she's worked with include Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Rachel Cusk, Garth Greenwell... And Sally Rooney. And that's why we especially want to pick her brain today. It's my pleasure to welcome Mitzi Angel. Mitzi, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bianca. I'm delighted to be here. I know you've had a busy start to the year because you've taken on your new role. So I'm even more appreciative of of you taking this time for us. So what I'd like to begin with is we love hearing about origin stories on the podcast. So you have been Sally's editor going all the way back to the beginning. Can you remember when this manuscript landed in your inbox? Was it like an exclusive submission to you? Was it a preempt? Was it a bidding war or was it just a much quieter submission? Can you take us through that? I think I knew
2: about Sally Rooney because I'd read a short story of hers. And I think that story was Mr. Salary. And I knew that the agent, Tracy Bohan, was going to submit Sally Rooney's novel. So I was aware that it was about to land in my inbox And it did. And I have very precise memories of where I was when I read the book, because in fact, it was a very cold March in London at the time, and my heat had broken down. And I was so cold that I actually had to move out of my apartment. And I, <laughs> I was in a hotel for the night while it was all being fixed. And I lay on the hotel bed and I think I had printed out the manuscript and I started to read it and I got that feeling you get, which doesn't happen very often, but happens sometimes if you're lucky. And the feeling is, oh this is a voice I need to pay attention to. And I read it pretty quickly from then on and felt a great sense of excitement. And then a lot of other publishers were also interested, but... In the end, I was lucky enough to be able to publish Sally.
0: Was it that you and Sally had to have a conversation? So she had a few editors who made offers and then she was deciding who she wanted to work with? Or was it just, you know, a kind of bidding war and whoever was prepared to spend the most got the book? Because for me, it's always interesting chatting to authors who don't always go with the publisher who offered the most money. They kind of feel that they need to fall in love with, with an editor. So so that's why I ask on that end. Yes, I do remember writing
2: a note about the book. That's how it went for me. So I wrote the agent, and she presumably would have forwarded that to Sally. So it really depends from submission to submission how these things unfold. Sometimes the author is very intent on a particular editor, really feels that a particular editor has the kind of understanding necessary for the writer to be able to fulfill their vision. And sometimes, of course, you know, a writer needs the money, so there's not going to be much of an option uh, when it comes to choosing between someone who's offering a lot more money and someone who's offering far less. So it
0: just depends, I would say. Yeah, it definitely differs from writer to writer. And that tingly feeling, let's talk about that a bit. Because our listeners mm-hmm. are hoping to land agents and they're hoping to go out on submission. And they're always wondering, what is the thing that's going to stand out to an editor? And, you know, for you, are you more a voice-driven editor? That's the thing that gives you the tingles, is it characterization? At what point of the novel are you getting those tingles and you, you just know? So I think
2: about this quite a lot and I try to interrogate myself a bit, you know, what is it that, makes me sit up and take notice of something. I think it has something to do with voice, certainly. I think it has something to do with the kind of the integrity of the voice. So the voice might be exciting. The voice might feel alive. Above all, I think I'm looking for integrity, some sense that the voice is telling me the truth even though, of course, we're talking about fiction. So that's a kind of paradox. It's quite hard to describe, but I would say, does this feel real in some way? Does it feel authentic in some way? And sometimes, even within the first two or three sentences, I feel that I can recognize a voice, that I can almost anticipate what that voice is going to do next, even though, of course, I have absolutely no idea And that's because within those first three sentences, the writer has achieved something, has achieved integrity of some kind, that there's a a worldview that's carried along by what the writer's putting on the page in those first three sentences. I can already tell that there's a vision there. There's a way of seeing the world. And it's just as we're all very different, the way that we talk to one another, we have different voices, we have different ways of pronouncing things. We we bring along our histories, our backgrounds, our experiences. You might, if you listen carefully to someone, be able to get quite a good sense of what that person is like. In quite a short space of time, I think it's a little bit like that, it's listening carefully and intuiting the originality of the voice so that I feel that that's kind of my job. It's a bit like listening to music almost.
0: Yeah. I often liken it to dating. And I feel like for editors and authors, you know, when when you sit down with that manuscript, it's like being on the first date. You just know it's going to be a match or it's not going to be a match. And there's a chemistry and a magic that happens there. But I love how you've been able to intellectualize it. Because most times when I chat to editors, they're completely unable to put it into words how that alchemy works. I remember reading in an interview that you soon realized how the young people in your office were talking about conversations with friends almost as if these were people that you knew so that must have been so rewarding for you because you'd already acquired the manuscript you'd felt that strongly about it and now you had to pitch it to the rest of the publisher and to hear young people in in the company kind of speak about these characters that way must have been so affirming for you
2: yes it was really wonderful and of course It gives great pleasure to feel that other people in the company are enjoying the book and and gives you hope that others outside the company will enjoy the book. And I have always felt with Sally's books that her characters do come alive in a very special way and that they become part of my life. (laughs) And I think... Lali feels for her characters, and you can feel that as you read. She likes to spend time with them. That's something that I feel one can detect in in the writing itself. So, yes, I mean, all of the characters have become part of my world and so many other people's worlds, which is really wonderful.
0: And she's so wonderfully empathetic towards her characters. You can feel this lack of judgment, even with, you know, the characters who are struggling, they're so real, they damaged, but you can see that she has this affection for them and she really wants them to make it. And I think that is what helps her readers really cheer on, on these characters as well. Many writers have amazing success with their first novel and then it scares the living hell out of them or it intimidates them so much that they aren't able to produce Work soon after that, or they aren't able to write for a while after that. And it's been wonderful to see with Sally that she has gotten so much attention, she has been lauded and then of course the minute you raised upon a pedestal, there'll always be people who will try and bring you down from that, etc. So she's had a lot of attention and yet she's brought out her third novel after that amazing success. Is that something that you as an editor can help guide your writers through, or is that something they need to do within themselves?
2: I think a writer will probably always have to find it in themselves. It's certainly the case that I can be a conversation partner. I can help support the writer. I can be there for any kind of conversation that a writer may want to have about how a project is taking shape. But I suppose it's a cliche in a way to say that you know a writer is alone at the desk with the computer or the typewriter or... The pen and the paper, there is always going to be that moment when when the writer has to sit and face the fact that there's a blank page and that they that they they want to write and they need to write, but that that's not always easy to do. I think an editor needs to be very understanding of that difficulty. It certainly is a challenge for writers to follow one book with another book and another book and manage the expectations that there might be on all sides. But I feel very lucky to work with many people who have somehow managed to find the space to work. And the work means a lot to them. And they are able to just shut some of the world out and and get get back to the work which is what matters
0: you know yeah and you know I chat to a lot of authors on the podcast women especially who it's so frustrating because they feel the sense of imposter syndrome if they experience success Um, there are male authors who feel it as well but generally it seems to be a thing that women battle with and for me that was so wonderful to see with Sally especially as a younger woman if she feels it it certainly doesn't come across Cross, and she's certainly powered through it and you know she's owning her talent and she's owning her success and that's incredibly inspiring I think for for other woman writers to see which um, is something that I've loved mm-hmm. about her work. Can I ask how has your editing of her work changed because you know when you acquired that manuscript yes she was Sally Rooney but she wasn't capital letters Sally Rooney and now three books later you know she's considered this icon megastar in publishing circles has that in any way influenced the way you've edited her or or has your editing process with her stayed pretty much consistent from her first novel keeping in mind that she's obviously growing into her powers as a writer as writers should
2: i hope that when i am sitting in my study my work from home arrangement <laughs> that I go back to the work itself, and perhaps a bit like a writer, I keep the world at bay. I'm a reader, you know, there I am alone with the text, and I respond to it as a reader responds to it. And the way that we work is we have a conversation about how the book feels, and it's incredibly rewarding and has nothing to do with the noise outside the kind of world of the book. And that's one of the things I love about my job is that I get to think very carefully about what's on the page. And I do all kinds of other things in my job. I think about the cover and the catalogue copy and whether we're printing the right number of books. And, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There are many, many things that go into a book's publication. I work with colleagues who know all about typefaces and I work with colleagues who know all about how to market a book and all of those conversations I'm part of every day. But one of the things that I continue to do and I've always enjoyed doing is simply to read and to read with, I hope, care and kind of to go back to that word I used earlier, to listen to kind of listen to what the book is doing. And that always feels to me as though it occupies a a kind of sacred space, I would almost go so far as to say.
0: Yeah, for me, working with an excellent editor is, you know, when you're this writer and you have the story in your mind – it's so in your head and you can't see the wood for the trees. And here it feels to me like there's this story that's banging against a door that wants to get out. And I feel like working with an excellent editor is that editor opening the door and allowing that story out in a way that the writer has imagined it. And it's such a interesting process, the give and take between author and editor, and it requires so much trust. And in books where you can see that the writer and the editor have that kind of trust relationship, you can see it coming coming out on the page, you know, in, in terms of that. And that we can definitely see with, with all of her books, which is one of the reasons why I absolutely wanted to chat with you. Let's talk about, uh, this is something that comes up all the time when we talk about Sally Rooney on the podcast. We talk about her and people are like, what is it with the lack of quotation marks in dialogue? It blows people's mind. They either love it or they hate it. Now, when I was reading Emma Donahue's Pull of the Stars, uh, that takes place during this Uh, Spanish flu and it's nurses and women in a maternity ward who are trying to give birth during this pandemic and it takes place over a few days and she doesn't use dialogue there And she doesn't separate the inner monologue in italics either so that the whole thing becomes like a kind of fever dream because these characters are exhausted. They've been working long hours and everything runs into each other so that you as the reader have to do a lot of heavy lifting in figuring out what was actually said. What is the character thinking? When it comes to Sally's novels, I can't say that I'm able to pinpoint exactly why she does it or what it necessarily adds to the narrative? Is it a stylistic choice or is there a reason for it that you can pinpoint for us why it works so incredibly well in her novels? I think that's a very good question. I think
2: some books work very, very well with dialogue in quotation marks and some books, there are many, work very, very well not using quotation marks and Actually, I think quite a few writers I publish do not use quotation marks, which is interesting. So I don't think Ben Lerner uses quotation marks, for example. I'm wondering about Sheila Hetty. Now, I would say, you know, one would have to sort of ask Sally kind of what she feels that she's looking for in omitting the quotation marks from the dialogue. I think... There's something about using quotation marks that can sometimes feel like you're really announcing the fact that someone is speaking, and and you might sort of read it as a kind of ta-da, here's someone speaking, (laughs) And, and that can kind of get in the way of something else that's going on in the book, which might be flow, rhythm, or it might have something to do with the characters being mediated through the narrative presence in the book, the authorial presence, which is behind the book. And that's as important as the characters speaking in quotation marks, which can sometimes overemphasize what they have to say in perhaps unhelpful ways.
0: Yeah. And um, I mean, I could understand it in conversations with friends because the whole book is just one long conversation. So it feels like if everything's a conversation, why do you need quotation marks? And it's certainly something you see in much more literary works. So if you look at Bernadine Evaristo, Girl, Woman, Other, same thing happened there and no punctuation at all. So for our at least Sally uses punctuation marks. Girl, woman, other, there was, there were no punctuation marks at all. So, so that was definitely more challenging. I want to talk about the very unusual point of view structure of Beautiful World, Where Are You? It took me quite a while to pinpoint it while I was reading it. And when I did, I was like, aha, and then I was obsessed with it. So she writes the book You can't even call it in an omniscient point of view because in an omniscient point of view, the narrator is godlike and they have access to a character's thoughts and their feeling and their interiority. Whereas what Sally does with Beautiful World, Where Are You? is she sets up the narrator as observer. It is like a fly on the wall and all the narrator can tell the reader is what they see and what they hear. They can report gestures and they can report on dialogue and what somebody's seeing on their phone, but there is zero thoughts, feelings, any of that. And then to counteract that, she has the chapters whereby Alice and Eileen are emailing each other. So there we have nothing but thoughts and interiority juxtaposed against the chapters where we have nothing but action. Can you speak about that structure? Because I honestly can't say I've seen anybody else do that. And I found that fascinating.
2: Yes, I love it. I find it really interesting, too. I mean, I think the question that the book asks itself is, does the book itself know the details of the figures it describes, I actually, in front of me, have some thoughts I'd written down about that some time ago, just because I was looking through my notes before we met. And and I think that the, the novel kind of enjoys the character's inscrutability and that the so-called omniscient narrator is perhaps, as, as you said, not as omniscient as we used to narrate as being. And so maybe what that means is the book is in sympathy with its reader. You know, we don't know the characters, the narrator doesn't quite know the characters, and also the characters, despite their great, great effort, don't always know each other. You know, they're best friends, and that's one of the themes of the book, is how well can you know another person? You can be extremely close to another person, and yet you can thwart your friendship. You can get in the way of your friendships and your closeness. So I think the book asks quite a lot of questions about the nature of closeness. What I would say is that there's a shared relationship between the narration and the reader. And both are encountering the subject as if for the the first time. And both are finding their footing in a fictional world. And that I find very moving. And then sometimes the book knows more than we do, you know, so sometimes there are these moments when suddenly, quite startlingly, Simon says, you and I are going to be friends for the rest of our lives at the very beginning of the book. And there's that kind of knowledge that rushes in unexpectedly. And then towards the end of the book, there's a lot of very beautiful omniscience in the sense that the narrator is hovering over the town, the sea, the house, is looking at these characters as if from a great distance, as if looking into a lighted window, knowing that there's human presence there, and that these lives are unfolding, and knowing that those lives have to unfold the way they will, and that the creator, the narrator, feels for them, can't help them necessarily. And that's part of what makes it beautiful, I think.
0: Like you say, it's these moments where we zoom out very, very far and these moments where we zoom mm-hmm. in really, really close. And I think it's such an interesting meditation on intimacy, you know, because like you say, even in our closest relationships, how well do we know someone else? All we know is what we are thinking and our interpretation of what they're doing, but we're never inside their thoughts. We're never inside their head, so we can never be 100% certain. And even the the relationship between Alice and I, Eileen is interesting. There's that closeness there, but they're both the kind of people that don't allow too much. Closeness, uh, and you can see them struggling with that as well. And, and definitely, that narrative voice perfectly showed that. So, for our listeners, you know, we, we speak about when you begin a novel, you need to decide on the voice is it first person, is it third person, third person, close, third, you know, or limited or omniscient, etc.? And it's so much more choosing a point of view than just like, oh, this is, you know, going to work for this particular story. Because as we can see in Sally's novel, how that point of view just per- perfectly brings into focus everything that's at the heart of the story. And in the beginning, I was so uncomfortable reading it and I couldn't understand why I was feeling uncomfortable. And then I realized that it was like a social setting to me because I read to understand what other people are thinking and feeling. And here I was, it was almost like being at a in a bar watching two people and not knowing what the bloody hell they were each thinking and feeling. And, and that's a true reflection of life. So that was wonderful. I have some questions here, Mitzi, from some of our partners podcast listeners who asked me to put these to you. Um, Some of them are specifically about Sally. Some are more about the industry. Do you see any differences in the North American versus the UK fiction markets? That's a good question.
2: Yes, I do. There's a greater emphasis, I think, on paperback fiction in the UK. I mean, when we deal with our UK colleagues, they very often publish their paperback much sooner than we do, and they push the paperback a great deal. And if you walk into a Waterstones, which is the kind of equivalent of Barnes & Noble, you'll see big promotional activity around paperback publishing. And there's more emphasis here on the
0: hardcover. So there's a marked difference there. And also, can I just say that the kind of stories that get published in hardcover and paperback, there's a difference there because sort of more serious literary books are considered suitable for hardcover, whereas, you know, more romance or genre fiction is considered better for paperback. So I think, does that mean that the UK is more open to genre fiction than literary fiction or not necessarily?
2: I think there's a thriving market for both in in the UK. I mean, one thing I would say is that literary fiction is published fairly often as a paperback original which is something that does happen here too. And in fact, at FSG, with FSG Originals, we we do that. But debut novels, literary fiction debut novels are often published in paperback at a lower price point than a hardcover.
0: Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, people don't want to spend their hard-earned dollars on an author that they don't know. They're prepared to, you know, buy the big name authors in in hardcover because it's more expensive, but they know what they're getting and they're not necessarily prepared to take that shot with An unknown element.
2: Yes. So that's the way it works there. And we do some of that with FSG Originals. We have a lot of fun with that, trying to reach a different market, perhaps, and being playful and, you know, dare I say it, a little edgy. On that list.
0: Wonderful. We have a question specifically about Sally. Sally Rooney represents the current aesthetic preference for a kind of minimalism economy of voice. Is it a literary movement or a reflection of our time? What trends do you see? I think there are so many different things going on.
2: I mean, I see all kinds of writers who have a very different stylistic approach to Sally's. I mean, we publish some writers whose style is, is far more elaborate in some ways and I suppose just more full-bodied. Or, I mean, I actually think Sally is a very lyrical writer. She may keep things fairly simple, but there's a lyricism in her work. So I'm not sure that I see her being part of a particular movement, as it were.
0: Yeah, I'm also just thinking this year of somebody like um Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle, which I absolutely adored. And that Mm -hmm. bordered on purple prose. It was so lush Mm -hmm. and so fulsome, it really bordered on on being over the top. So so certainly there's enough room, you know, in the market for books on both ends of the spectrum and in between.
2: Yes, and it's, it's nice because I think people respond to lots of different kinds of books, and there are so many different ways of writing good fiction. And I don't necessarily have a preference for one particular way of telling a story over another. I just need to be convinced by what's happening on the
0: page. Another question is, so on the podcast, we have two agents who read query letters and critiques of the first five pages to help authors land their their agents. And uh, something that they are reporting that they're hearing from a ton of editors is that editors don't want COVID stories. They feel the reading public does not want to be reading about COVID in the next few years. What's your take on that? Do you agree on that or not necessarily? I don't necessarily agree. I mean, the same thing applies. It all depends how
2: convincing the story is, how interesting to me it is, uh, how original it is. I mean, suddenly people are going to have to write about this. I mean, we're living in this time of ch- enormous change and we've all had to readjust our lives in so many different ways, how could it not be written about? I mean, we look to fiction to reflect the times that we live in. And talking specifically about literary fiction, I think that's what it's there to do, is to bring us a, an account of What's going on at the moment, you know, really asking questions about the world that we live in. And it's not that I'm sitting here waiting for the COVID novel to land in my inbox. It's not that. But it's that if someone writes something fabulous about it, if someone writes something devastating and that somehow captures the feelings we all have about having lived through this and still living through this, then I will absolutely read it, so I certainly
0: wouldn't turn anything away on that basis wonderful see so for our listeners who are working on those kinds of stories there is hope and we say all the time for every rule there's a million people who've broken it and for every rule there's an exception so that certainly uh, (laughs) proves that Uh, last question for you is what's the biggest mistake you see writers making and i'm sure at your level mitzi you're not seeing crappy manuscripts. You are seeing really good, polished, excellent manuscripts. But in terms of writers out there who are emerging, who are trying to land their agent and get their book in front of an editor... Do you have like a piece of advice of sort of the most common thing that you see that writers do wrong that they can perhaps focus on to improve their craft? Well, firstly, this isn't so much about craft, but I think it's always a good thing to make sure
2: that you're querying people, whether they're agents or editors who have an affinity with the kind of book that you're setting out to write. So it's always good to think about Where you see your work sitting, you know, is it like Bernardine Evaristo in some way or is it like Sally Rooney or... Does it have something in common with Ben Lerner, or, you know, I'm just picking names at, at random here, and who are the people who are associated with that work, and would those people be more likely to be interested in my work? So it's always good to be thinking in that way. And then in terms of craft, I think one good piece of advice might be to try to read some of your work aloud. Because I sometimes find that myself when I'm writing, which I actually hate to do. I find it enormously painful. So I'm sending out my sympathies to all of you writers (laughs) out there. I find it helps me to hear the sound that I'm making. Because when I read, I suddenly realize that word just doesn't work here. Or this phrase doesn't sound right. Or I could cut this. I don't need this. This is redundant. I would always look for redundancies. I would always think quite hard about what you could cut because that then reveals what's at the heart of what you're trying to say.
0: Excellent advice. And I've said before on the podcast that I do my best editing after my books are published and I'm at a bookstore event and I'm reading from my work. And that is when I do the very best editing, which is then, of course, too late. Mitzi, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been an absolute delight chatting with you. I'd I'd love for us to make this an annual tradition where I pick your brain about one of your authors in terms of their work. And thank you for sharing your insight with us. Thank you
3: very much. That was great fun. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal
0: Today's guest is a former magazine editor, award-winning journalist, and government communications writer. She wrote articles and speeches for, among others, the Cabinet Office, Home Office, and Department for International Development. Her enthusiasm for travel has taken her around the world several times, from Madagascar to the Galapagos, Guatemala to Zimbabwe, which is close to South Africa, so that really excited me, Japan, Russia, and South Korea. A playwright and screenwriter, she penned the feminist Shakespearean stage comedy Netherbard and co-wrote the feature film Retreat, a psychological thriller starring Killian Murphy, Tundi Newton, and Jamie Bell. The Appeal is her first novel. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Janice Hallett. Janice, welcome to the show.
4: Oh, thank you, Bianca. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Did you ever get to South Africa in your travels or was Zimbabwe
4: as close close as you got? No, we got to South Africa. We did the garden route. I remember going on safari. It's quite a few years ago now, but no, loved it. Cape Town, brilliant. Oh, you're
0: making (laughs) me homesick. It's been a long time since I've been back because of damn COVID. Oh, yeah. Okay. So for our listeners, I want to begin by reading an excerpt from the editor's notes to this book. So when advanced reader copies go out, editors often have a note in there to let booksellers and librarians and readers know what it is about the book that they absolutely loved. So it goes, dear reader, there are two things I love in a crime novel, a good puzzle and an unusual structure. So imagine my delight in finding that Janice Hallett's debut novel, The Appeal, has both. The novel opens with two young lawyers combing through documents, messages, emails, texts from an amateur theatrical group whose leaders, the Haywoods, also own the local country club. When the Haywoods' young granddaughter becomes sick, the community rallies around them to raise funds for an experimental treatment. But not everyone is sure of the treatment's efficacy, including a recently returned NGO worker, a now amateur actress in the group, and a nurse at the local hospital. As the lawyers read the emails and chat via WhatsApp, it becomes clear that something isn't right about their findings. One person is dead. One person is in jail and one person is unsure they've apprehended the real killer. Now, The Appeal is a very modern kind of epistolary novel told at breakneck pace. It pushes the boundaries of what a crime novel can and should be while keeping readers flying through its pages. I feel like that's an understatement. (laughs) Holy hell, Batman. (laughs) Janice when I read an author's work and I just marvel at their brain, I love the opportunity to get to chat to them and try and dissect that brain. So this kind of structure for a debut novel is mind-blowing. I know you have that journalism background, but it's still mind-blowing. Could you take us through like, from when you got the idea to when you started writing the book? I can. And I can say
4: straight off that it was an accident, that structure. i have been kicking around trying to write for TV. And I had an idea for a TV series that was just sort of whirling around my head. It was about two people who'd been volunteering overseas. They'd seen everything, but forced to come back home. Suddenly, they have a new perspective on the world that they now live in. And they have this particular view of the fundraising campaign. And while that was whirling around my head, I had an epiphany that TV screenwriting wasn't going to be the way my ideas were going to get out there. So I thought, I'm going to try something different. It was suggested to me to write a novel. I thought, okay, i got this idea. I like this idea. How can I turn this into a novel? And because I'd thought of it for TV, my first thought was, well, I could have the minor characters and write the messages going between them all while the main action happened front stage, so to speak. And so I started writing letters between other characters. And that was how it started. I mean, it's quite ignorance was bliss. I really enjoyed writing all those characters and discovering them and exploring them. I had no deadlines. No, it was great. That was how it happened. And it was an accident, but a very happy one.
0: And so you started off writing these letters between the characters with action happening on the page. Now, for the listener, how this novel has evolved is we begin with these two detectives who have been sent all of this information kind of in chronological order, and they are working through it. So at what point did you realize that you didn't need those kind of narrative bits where the action was happening, that the entire novel could be WhatsApp messages, emails, newspaper articles, etc. Like, when did you realize that?
4: Well, very early on, I knew that it had to have some sort of structure. I hadn't even got 20,000 words into it when I thought, although all these emails between people are great, we need someone to guide us through it. And that was when I went back to put in the two lawyer characters, Femi and Charlotte. So it was very quickly after starting it that I got those. And I suppose because I was in the mood of writing letters and communications and emails, I put them as WhatsApp messages. So it does kind of work and that they lead us through it and
0: they they do hold our hands
4: while we're reading the rest and they're our guides through the whole story.
0: Yeah, I referred to them as detectives. Mm. I know they're lawyers, but it did feel like they were these detectives Absolutely. combing through everything. I feel like being a lawyer and a detective is a bit of the same thing mm. now that I think about it. There are huge challenges in writing this kind of novel. Ignorance is bliss. You just kind of dive into it because as a creative writing instructor teacher, when Students say they want to do an epistolary novel. There are amazing epistolary novels out there. The Guernsey Potato Peel and Literary Society one is one of my favorites. Letters to Alice is another one of them. But it's the kind of thing that is really tough to do and not many people can do it well. And we mostly think of epistolary novels as diary entries and letters, which harkens back to the day. And I love that now. The epistolary form can include text messages, it can include WhatsApps, and I don't know if you followed the whole the bad art friend debacle. Yes, I did. That made my whole writing group want to delete all of our WhatsApp messages.
4: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Although as I found out while working on the appeal, nothing is ever deleted.
0: That Mm. was scary to me as well. So we were all like, should we delete it? And then we realized Mm. it actually doesn't get deleted. I mean, at some point you must have realized that there are pros and cons to using this kind of structure. So take us through what were the cons for you? like What were the difficult things and how you overcame them? And what did you see as the pros of this structure?
4: The cons, well, one thing you have to get round is your characters in their letters or communications. Have to describe the action. Now, if two people were there, you wouldn't get them describing the action to each other. So, in their communications, you have to make clear what happened without saying it, or you have to bring in another character and have that character told what happened. So, there is a bit of structural shenanigans going on when something's happened, particularly, for example, in the appeal without giving anything away, there's a big event and everyone is there. So, for a time, you can have emails going back and forth and keeping the reader in suspense as to what happened. But at some point, you do have to have people saying what happened, so the reader does know. So though, things like that can be a bit tricky. But the prose—you've got the characters talking, and in WhatsApp and email, you've got them talking off guard and speaking from the heart, and they think they're talking to just one person, but we're listening in. So it, that's a, a very delicious position that you are as the reader in the of the epistolary novel. And I'm inspired a lot by the Victorian epistolary novels and *The Tenant of Wildfell Hall*. For example, I love those and they've always been in my mind. So, even though it was an accident that I used this particular format, I think it's always been there that one day I would address this format myself.
0: And something else is it allows you for some characters to kind of be unreliable narrators because even if you have, say, 10 people at something and someone gets murdered, if all 10 of those people get interviewed by the police, each of them is going to have a very different recollection of events. So perception is something that you can mind very much here. Who perceives what in what way? Is it because they have an agenda? Is it because they pay attention to certain things? So how does that help characterization? Well, it's a gift, I think, because some
4: characters will completely subconsciously change things. It's in their nature to look perhaps on the bright side or on the dark side. Uh, that's just them. Other characters are very conscious, are very deceitful, and are deliberately misleading you or telling an untruth. And then there's others who don't pick up properly on what goes on. They're not observational people, and they take things at face value. So yeah, it's a gift. And once you've worked out those characters and got that across, it's a gift in a novel like this. I would recommend for writers to try this format. I don't think it's quite as hard as you think, and it's not as easy as it feels. So
0: it's a really good exercise to give a go to. Very much. I had a creator writing student. Hi, Gina who a while ago was writing her novel using post-it notes that characters leave for each other Ah. and emails and lawyer's letters and things like that. And we were kind of looking at her work together to say, okay, these are the things that work and these are the huge limitations. What I love about this form is something I hate writing, but you have to do it is like description of the scene and description of characters. And you need to have characters moving through a space. So if you have two characters having a conversation with each other, you can't just have these two talking heads, blah, 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 and dialogue coming out. You have to describe where they're sitting, their gestures, you have to give action beats. But if you have them emailing each other, none of that's important. And you know, I said it was an accident that all this happened, the appeal, but that
4: has all come from my background in script writing, in particularly for the stage, but also for the screen. Because in stage scripts you do very little explanation of where characters are because they're on a stage and the director will sort that out and the you know, person doing the scenery will do that and the actor will take on the character and bring their own creativity to it so as a writer it's very light it's very light touch it's just dialogue and it's getting everything across through speech and that feeds down into the appeal So it didn't worry me that I wasn't exploring where people were when they were writing because I never had
0: done very much. Yeah, I should by rights be a scriptwriter because I love dialogue. For me, that's where the magic happens in my own novels. And when I read other people's books, I'm kind of generally skimming for the dialogue because that's what I enjoy. And so you cut out everything so that everything kind of became dialogue in this. Now, How did you avoid falling into that whole telling thing? Because we're always saying as creative writing instructors, be careful of telling versus showing. Whereas when you write an epistolary form, it's pretty much everything's telling. When you sit down to write an email to someone about something that happened, you are telling them what happened. But you managed to do it in a way that didn't feel like we were getting info dumps or tons of this expository information. So did you develop tricks along the way? I think I must have done. I have to say, though, the first
4: version of the appeal that I wrote was 20,000 words longer than the one you'll read. It was around 100,000 words. And most of what was taken out were emails between two characters. That's Izzy emailing Sam. So you can imagine how unbalanced that first draft was. So I took a lot of that out. it's Izzy really describing her day to Sam or describing her life when Sam isn't there. They work together. So that was a lot of extraneous description that went pretty quickly. But yeah, you're right. You do have to get around that factor of telling
0: rather than showing.
4: I don't know how I did it. To I think it's keeping things quick, making sure you, things don't go on too long. That's a, a Yeah, key.
0: there are certain writers who are tellers, like Anne Tyler there's certain writers who that's just their style. It's just a telling style. And I feel like if the characters are interesting enough, if the story is interesting enough, etc., you don't even really mind that. Coming back to those edits that you did, was that something you realized on your own? Or was that after you found an agent? Or was that with your editor? How did those edits happen? That first draft was before it went to any publisher.
4: My screenwriting agent passed my novel on to another agent in the same agency. So they read it between them. And that was the read where they said it really doesn't have to be this immersive. We don't have to be this engaged with how obsessed one character is. So it was them that pointed it out. So that was a very useful level of reading, I think, the first readers.
0: And it was your film agent who sold the book to a publisher? Or did you then have to get another agent, because most of our listeners are trying to get an agent in some form or another. And we have script writers who listen to this and novelists. So that's an interesting answer for them.
4: I had my screenwriting agent. I've been with her around three years. And when I'd, I mean, I discussed with her, first of all, my decision to write a novel. And she said, well, write something and I'll read it. If I think Guy will be interested, Guy Banks, my book agent, I'll show her. So I did. And she did find it interesting. So she passed it on. That's how I got my book agent. So I've got two agents for separately there. That's how that happened. Do you want me to talk about how I got my screenwriting agent?
0: Yeah, I think that'll be quite interesting for some of our listeners as well, if you don't mind. Well, I hope it will be heartening for them
4: because not getting an agent was my big stumbling block in my career. It was 15 years, I think, before I had any success as a writer and at least 10 of them were trying to get an agent. It was an absolute slog. I couldn't get an agent for years. And my heart goes out to all writers who at this moment are trying to overcome that hurdle in their career, because you do need one. I mean, I know some writers say you can get away without one. Maybe some do. I think you need one. And I think you need a good one. You need the right one for you. But finding them and getting them and getting them to read your work and engage with it, that's a really hard thing. It's it's an X factor. It's like dating and finding the right one for you. So I've been there with all you writers who are at that point in your career. And all I
0: can say is keep going, you'll find the one. Yeah, it is. It's an enormous struggle. And when you finally found that agent, was it because you had gotten exponentially better? Was it that you had one idea that finally captured someone's attention or was it just pure luck? Because often I really believe that it's pure luck. There are excellent writers out there who've sent their manuscripts to agents and agents just get thousands of submissions a week. They just aren't able to read all of them. And sometimes something just falls through the cracks. So how did that happen for you? Yeah, I think like serendipity, as they say, you
4: approach the right agent at the right time when they're looking for someone new or something new. An agent suddenly clicks with your work. You write something new and that's what clicks with an agent. I think uh, advice I would always give writers is keep writing new stuff. Don't keep going over that one thing that's been rejected by two or three, four or five people. Don't go back to it and rewrite that. Write
0: something new with what you've learned from that and keep everything fresh. That's excellent advice because we tend to go, Well, I've spent five years on this one thing. I don't want to give it up. But like there's no point in spending another five years. No, you can always come something back that to it. You can come back
4: to it when you're more successful if it's something that's really close to your heart. But no, move on. Move to something different,
0: something new and fresh. Yeah. Excellent advice. Now in terms of the Agatha Christie elements of the story, we've got like a big ensemble cast here, as you would expect in this kind of story. Because if you're gonna have a who done it or who was it, there need to be quite a few suspects, etc. Was that always the kind of take you were going to have on it? Or again, is that something that evolved as you were writing? It evolved as I was writing. I think
4: one of the things, in hindsight, that's something that people have always said, this is a huge cast of characters, which makes me think, oh, should it have been smaller? I do like it having a big cast, I must say. And a lot of things I write, look, my plays were very big casts. And I don't know why I veer towards large casts. But I like the ensemble nature and that all of these characters are interlinked. And one way or another, most of them know all of the others, either a lot or they're related to them or they are only passing acquaintances. So yeah, I like that. I'm writing about a community, not just a small bunch of people or a family or just friends or a couple.
0: Yeah, so for our listeners who are working on things with quite a few characters, definitely read this and see how it was done. Because in the beginning, I was kind of taking notes to be like, okay, who's this person again? Who's this person? And that's just because I have the attention span of a newt. (laughs) But you get into it very quickly because you train us as readers to keep track of everything. The really funny parts that aren't even, it's not even supposed to be funny, that comes across. (laughs) brilliantly is like isabel so izzy will write to martin hayward and she writes these long flowing emails and so complimentary and tons of things and he replies will do regards or she sends a long email and he replies thanks regards which is so true of people some of us (laughs) write these long abusive emails and we wordy and other people are like thanks and that's a perfect way of showing characterization so without telling us who martin is That one word reply in his email tells us pretty much everything we need to
4: know about him. It's what we don't say, isn't it? What we say is important. What we don't say
0: sometimes speaks louder. Did you plot this novel out from the beginning or are you more of a pantser? Was it a case of, let's see where this goes and let me try and figure out who, who did it, what's happening?
4: Pants are all the way. I don't have any notes. I mean, I've got three, two or three post it notes here. That's for novel number three, and that's it. No, I like to evolve. I like it to be an organic process. If I plan things or try to plan things, it takes all the joy out of it for me. I like to explore and expand as I go. If I come across something that I, something needs to have been set up earlier, I'll stop and go back and pop that in and then go back and go back to my organic way of
0: working. It's just how I am. That's exactly how I am, too. But a lot of people say you can't pants this kind of novel that you have to plot it out up front. But honestly, I feel like if you let the characters do what the hell the characters want to do and you let them just come to the front and be themselves, often they're going to surprise you as the writer, which means they're going to surprise the reader. And it does allow the story to feel more organic than if your characters become these puppets who you are quickly trying to manipulate through a predetermined plot. That's my take. I know a ton of our listeners will disagree with me the eternal pencils versus platter <laughs> war. <laughs> Absolutely.
4: Yeah, it works for a lot of people. Loads of writers will plot everything out. And that's great because it will make them more confident as they're writing that they know where they're going. I have to admit, though, I do do a lot of reverse engineering. Once I get to the end of that first draft, that's a beginning in itself. That's the beginning of making the story work. And I often have to go back and make the beginning fit the end and there's lots of reverse shenanigans going on i think i have a big cast of characters this is just talking to you now i have a big cast of characters because if you do then you've always got someone there who can have done something if you get to the end of "Oh, i need someone to have done that crime or to have made that move earlier on if you've got all those characters there'll be someone there that can have done that and you can pop back and make a few adjustments and they'll be part of your plot. So, you know, it all works out in the end. I have that kind of confidence, I think, as a writer, having done so much screenwriting and playwriting.
0: Yeah. Reverse engineering is excellent advice and it's something that I do a lot without even having given a name to it. I'll get to a certain scene and realize this needs to happen or this character needs to react in the following way or something needs to unfold. And then I'm like, oh, shit, what I've written up until now is not going to make that happen. And then I go back, add some elements, do some things, twist things around so that by the time we get to that scene, what's happening there makes complete sense. And it's not something I would have thought about until I got to that scene. So the only way out is through.
4: Absolutely. It sounds like we write in a similar way.
0: Yeah, very much so. So Janice, we've gotten to the end of our time. What a delight to chat to you. I absolutely loved The Appeal. For our listeners, we will put it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Remember, if you click on that link and buy through that, you are supporting an independent bookstore, you're supporting the podcast, and you are supporting awesome authors like Janice. Remember, one day when you are that author. This is how we make our income is by our readers' support, and we are greatly, greatly appreciative of that. Janice, is there any advice you can leave with our listeners, first-time writers who are working on that novel, perhaps moving across from different forms? Maybe they're writing in some other form. Any advice you can leave them with? Don't give up. I mean, It's been said before, it'll be said again, don't give up. If something
4: isn't working, try something new. Don't linger too long on one idea. Have lots of ideas. Be working on lots of them and keep things active and moving and fresh all the time and enjoy what you do. Even if you've spent, as I did, 15 years with no success at all, enjoy it. It's a privilege to be able to write and to
0: express yourself in that way. Just enjoy. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.